Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, Retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Today, my guest is retired Marine Corps Colonel Andy Milburn, an old friend of mine from the basic school and someone I'm fortunate enough to still be in touch with. If you recall the story I told back on the episode with Lieutenant General Milstead about wearing the captain's rank to infiltrate the enemy defenses at the basic school, Andy had a front row seat for that. And ever since that moment, we've shared a friendship and a passion for creative thinking that I think he was probably much more successful in implementing over a career than I was. Before I get too far into the introduction, I want to apologize up front for some of the poor quality audio in this episode. We ran into some serious file corruption, and we did our best to fix it in post-production. But even with those efforts, there are definitely some spots that couldn't be fixed, and um, things may sound a little strange. But after hearing it, I decided the content was just way too valuable to discard relative to the audio quality. So I'm publishing it anyway, and hope listeners will just forgive me. I do have a quick ask, though. If you're listening and you like this project, can you do a couple things to help me out? One, can you please share this on social media with your network? I'm posting the episodes on Instagram under the Mill Office account, on Facebook as Moments in Leadership, and on LinkedIn under my personal account, David B. Armstrong. So if you can find my posts and share them, it would be a huge help. I'd really appreciate it. Also, second, would you please take a minute and give it a review on Apple Podcasts? I've had close to 50 straight five-star reviews with some great commentary as well, and I'd just like to keep that going so it looks current. Okay, so back to Andy. Andy was born in Hong Kong and grew up in the UK where he attended St. Paul's School, then University College London, and then Westminster University for Law School. And while at university, he traveled extensively throughout the Middle East and Asia, which included a solo trip across Iran, which was at the height of that country's war with Iraq. That's a story that he tells in full in his critically acclaimed memoir, When the Tempest Gathers. So definitely go out and check that book out on Amazon, buy it, and give it some reviews. So after completing law school, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps as a private, and he was subsequently commissioned up from the ranks as a Marine Infantry and Special Operations Officer. He's commanded in combat at every grade, and as the commanding officer of the Marine Corps Special Operations Regiment, he was selected to lead a multinational task force, which was given the mission of defeating ISIS in Iraq. He retired in 2019 as the Chief of Staff, Special Operations Command Central, the headquarters which was responsible for the conduct of all the U.S. special operations throughout the Middle East. As mentioned, since retiring, he's written the book When the Tempest Gathers, but equally as impressive, a number of articles for national publications. He's on the adjunct faculty of the Joint Special Operations University, and he teaches classes on leadership and ethics to mid-grade and senior officers at U.S., British, and Canadian military schools. He also teaches courses overseas to officers from countries across Africa and the Middle East and Asia, and he participates regularly in debates and forums concerning ethics, modern warfare, and leadership. He's a fellow of the Modern War Institute, which is a joint venture between Princeton University and West Point Military Academy, and he also hosts the Institute's Irregular Warfare podcast, so check that out. 
He continues to travel and is since retiring, has been back to Somalia several times, Niger, Tunisia, Ukraine, Jordan, Mongolia, and the Philippines, and probably a ton of other places he didn't tell me about. And he tweets at Andy Milburn 8, that's the number 8, so Andy Milburn 8, and he could also be found on LinkedIn as well. So without any further ado, here is my interview with my old friend, retired Marine Corps Colonel Andy Milburn. Welcome, Colonel Andy Milburn, retired United States Marine Corps, and you know, less important than that is a, a personal friend of mine. We've known each other for over 30 years and met at TBS together, and I'm, I'm going to ask you if you remember a specific time. It was, it may have been an irrelevant comment to you, I, or something that's well, something Let me, let me interrupt. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say being a friend is less important, Dave, and it's the wrong way to, <laughs> it's the wrong way to count <laughs> Well, and I, sort of and, and to show you that I remember all of that, I will call you Dave and not Belly, uh, yes. which your listeners may or may not know was your uh, kind of your call sign. Call sign. You're non de guerre uh, back there. You're yeah, non was, there, non dare nine day war. Yes, it was. Uh, that was my call sign. It started out my freshman year in college. For people that don't know, uh, just like Maverick and Goose, I ended up with a call sign, and I learned a very valuable lesson. And I'll pass this on to any young leader lesson, listening right now. The more you fight a nickname or a call sign that you don't like, the longer it sticks. And here I am at 54 years old. People still call me Belly. So thankfully, it had, it had nothing to do with being fat back no, then. No, it, it was very inappropriate. <laughs> exactly. You and I were in the same TBS class together, although in different platoons. I told this story on a previous podcast, but we were out on the nine-day war together, and I don't remember exactly what the, the mission was, but at some point, my squad and fire team were tasked with going out and finding the the enemy defenses when our company was supposed to go into the attack. And I, I thought, you know, being a introductory to uh, maneuver warfare and all the creativity that was supposed to go along with, you know, the maneuver warfare mindset, I decided it would be a great idea to put on some captain's bars and walk right up to the uh, enlisted instructor company that was, that was providing the defense and ask them to give me a full tour of their defenses. And I ended up walking away and knew exactly where they were and everything. And it got around pretty quick that I had done that. And this is, you know, for listeners, this was pre-name tape days. So nobody really knew who I was when I did it. I got my ass chewed hard by a couple of the instructors. And at some point in the nine day war, you walked up to me. And this is my first memory of, of you was you said, that was ballsy, mate. I wish I had thought of it myself. And I don't know if you remember saying that or not, but I remember it probably a lot because of your British accent. I modeled a career on that incident, Dave. <laughs> The nine-day war, you know, the, the funny thing about that, all the, you know, combat deployments we've done since, and I can tell you the nine-day war was probably the most painful deployment that I've done, <laughs> only to be eclipsed by the 12-day war at IOC, uh, which was truly, unutterably, immeasurably, and for no reason painful. I mean, I say for no reason, but how that made me a better officer to eat one MRE a day and 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 go without sleep and and freeze my ass off. I'm still, you know, I'm still searching for meaning in that. And then the final pull out from the field, you know, you you made you knew you, a bunch of guys in my IOC class, uh, many of your uh, your your classmates actually. The, the final pull out from the field made uh, the um, withdrawal from Kabul look orderly. <laughs> it was just just a disaster. Yeah. So it, well, I mean, prepared yeah, as well. Yeah, I remember hearing the story. I think somebody somebody hiked back from the field and got a bunch of cattle cars to come out and get you guys or something like that. So just in that 
in that context, it was probably more orderly than the uh, evacuation from Kabul. As, as was usual back then, uh, I mean, you were desperate to get out of the field by then. It just seems like you've been out there for, for years, right? You remember that feeling of being out in the field in Quantico, even in winter, uh, but certainly in summer, you know, it's just, it's a hellacious place to be. Uh, mosquitoes, the high humidity, you just feel unwashed, unpleasant, unlight. You know, maybe that was just me. It's true. And, and, and you're counting, you know, I mean, I mean, you had the fun of camaraderie, but uh, there's always kind of that, that TBS mantra in the background that makes even things that otherwise would be fun, painful. So, yeah, it, I, I suppose, you know, here I am saying that we didn't perhaps learn much during those, those episodes in the field. But on the other hand, it, you know, we, we did. We learned what it was like at the bottom of the pyramid, right? We learned what it was like to be on a night patrol where you had no idea where you're going, you're falling asleep on your feet and you're just trying to follow the dude in front of you and you're carrying the soul, you know? And I think that those sort of humbling experiences, I think help you subsequently when, you, when you're in a position, <laughs> when you're in a position perhaps to change that. Well, and it was formative enough for us to be talking about it 32 years later. Yeah, yeah, so. I, you know, 100%. And, and there were, instances there were there were tactical things that I do learn that I remember and there were cases of leadership good and bad among the um, you know the SPCs and the instructors and you, you know we forget now although those, some of us have been back there to be instructors but we forget that they were under a certain amount of stress and pressure and going through mm -hmm. lack of sleep too so they weren't always at their best and we expected them to be at their best so we're uh, highly critical when they were not you know, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. And I think some of it had to do with the fact too that, and I know you'll remember this, but the instructors and most of the people at TBS at that point, if they weren't Vietnam vets, they had a, a huge rack of ribbons if they had the first ribbon of the second row. I mean, yeah. really, you looked at a guy and he's like, wow, that guy's got four ribbons. Yeah. Most of them had not done anything yet. And then all of a sudden, and I know you'll remember this, our company was sitting out squat on the golf course and the company commander came out, then Major Azell, Larry Azell, and he said, uh, how many of you know where the country of Kuwait is? And I remember you put your hand up because you're a really smart guy and uh, well-educated. <laughs> Being from a state school, I just hung my head down because I didn't want to uh, admit that I didn't know where it was. He said, yeah, last night, the country of Iraq invaded Kuwait and this country is going to go to war. And so everything you do from here on out is going to be real. I actually think that there was a jealousy issue there about how it was pretty likely that we were going to go participate. In so it that seemed conflict, and they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very, very much so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny. I was just talking about this the other day. Uh, yes. It it seemed, you know, that, um, you know, fast forward nine 11, it was kind of, I mean, a much more dramatic feeling then, but there was kind of the feeling of everything that we had done to that point was going to be so different than what lay ahead. You know, little did we know before the Gulf War. They, that was an extraordinary roller coaster of emotions. There was that moment, I remember that, and it injected absolute excitement. You know, there was no fear, there was no, there were no reservations, and even the fact no one knew where Kuwait was. You're very kind enough to say me, I just put up my hand because I was desperately <laughs> sycophantic and hoping, hoping to get infantry at that point in any good assignment I could. So, you know, mm -hmm. if he'd said, uh, you know, where's Narnia? I would have stuck on my hand. But nevertheless, you know, no one knew where it was. No one questioned the fact, hey, why are we doing this? But, but everyone was all in, you know, and uh, then there was, there was tremendous mounting excitement. The cool thing about that is the TBS staff could not have designed an event to focus people more 
and Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. You remember that, right? You know, it was because oh, the yeah. mantra from there thereafter was, hey, you guys are going to be at war in whatever it was, X number of weeks. And if you make this mistake there, you know, Lieutenant Armstrong, you're going to die and you're going to get a bunch of other people. Of course, it was all, it was all bullshit at the time, but we had no idea. And then we you were at ideas. artillery school. I was, and this is like, this still pains me. And there are some of your listeners may have been through that fatal class at IOC. You know, we graduated in uh, March of 91. We thought we are all bound for Saudi Arabia, right? We had orders for what was then 5th Marine Division. Extraordinary, which was kind of, I think, a catching unit before you got assigned to various units out in Saudi Arabia. By the way, if I'm talking too much, you can just stick up your hand, Dave, and I will stop instantaneously. No, it's your podcast. Trained, Nobody wants trained to listen by, to me. Trained by years of obedience to, to your every whim. <laughs> um, but, but in any case, so there we are. You know, and you can imagine the pressure ratchets up while we're at IOC. Uh, you know, I remember, um, you know, you'd go through these ridiculous hikes at the beginning, the you know, physical fitness tests. And I remember we had one guy whose name for some reason escapes me now was called Stinkbug. And I won't say his real name. You know, it was a dual cool guy, former recon, and he dropped out of one of the hikes. And I remember the instructors going absolutely apeshit on him and saying, <laughs> you know, as though, as though that's going to be the difference between life and death in Kuwait. <laughs> that's like what, that's how right. they portrayed it. You're going to let, you're going to let your whole company down. You're going to drop out of a hike and the Iraqis will kill everyone. You know, it was like any tenuous link to what we were doing wrong came back to that. So we were, we were naturally really honed uh, for this event. And we graduated from IOC. None of us took leave. We drove across, we, we were all, all told to uh, report in into Camp Pendleton. And we drove over there and much to our infinite chagrin, were then sidetracked to 29 Palms, which at that point was a garden spot that none of us had were familiar with. And uh, we joined what was called a casualty replacement company. You may have remembered mm -hmm. those, okay? The theory being that, you know, the US Marine Corps was gonna take something like 30,000 casualties, right? That was. Yeah. That was conventional wisdom. And so uh, all of us who had emerged recently from school, rather than waste us by throwing us right into the line, uh, we're going to wait until some unfortunate bastard got zapped. And then our, our fresh face would be pushed up to the line and, and you know, life would go on. That was the theory. Unfortunately, these so these casualty replacement companies were a hodgepodge, right? They were they were they were literally they're very much ad hoc units, and so you had guys like us who you know we thought we were infantry experts. Of course we were. We'd been through, you know, the, the basic school been through and, IOC. and IOC, yeah. yeah. But then you had dudes being pulled back from civilian life, reservists. You had uh, stop loss guys, and uh, you know our company commander was a. Um, San Diego cop who was singularly unimpressive. His XO was a lawyer, civilian lawyer, reservist. You know, I'm not, when I say reservist, I know that's not, you know, I'm not saying that as a, as a critique, but the point is that these guys happen to have execrable personalities. <laughs> so the lawyer, uh, the lawyer, and I'm not making this shit up, the lawyer was arrested halfway through our uh, course there at, at the Casualty Replacement Company. A little bit more about that in a moment. He was arrested for um, pedophilia. I mean, not, you know, not like child pornography, not that that's okay, Dave, but for actual like molesting children, which is not good. It's oh, not the geez. actions you expect of a Marine officer, right? And it, we're oh, yeah. fresh more lieutenants. So that was a bit of a shocker to us to watch him being taken away in handcuffs. 
And something about losing his deputy sent this company commander totally apeshit. He proceeded to have a series of histrionic fits. And I'm going to tell you this brief story, and there's no element of exaggeration, but it kind of tells you, gives you a sign of the time, sort of language people used back then, which fortunately is a bygone era. But I remember him yelling at, you may, may remember Mike Davis. Do you sure. remember? Yep. And Penn State Pratt. grad. Yeah, he was in my, yeah. uh, he was in my and so, um, um, TDS platoon. Those two had incurred his ire for some reason. And this guy's like, I've killed people. Do you understand that? I've killed people. I, I shot five Mexicans on the border. And uh, Davis, who could never keep his mouth shut, made some inappropriate comment at that point, you know, about was it a negligent discharge? I forget. And uh, I thought seriously, this guy was going to just totally lose it. Now, I'm not making this up either. He eventually had such a meltdown, he too had to be removed. All right, this time, <laughs> first time, instead of handcuffs, it was like, you know, the white coat guys who came in. And so, oh, wow. so they took one of the lieutenants from um, the company head of this Delta company. You know, he's a veteran by now, right? Because we've been in sure. 29 Palms for a week and he's senior to us. So, you know, we worship him like a god. And uh, he becomes the company commander and is actually, you know, that's the first time we saw good leadership. Meanwhile, the war breaks out in, in the Middle East. And uh, as you remember, 100 hours, right? And, yeah. and we watch it all in the Warrior Club from start oh, to finish. TV. Yeah, you can imagine our morale was sky high. But, you know, uh, it does make me, you know, hopefully this one, this again, I, I've said, it's probably said enough already to offend half your listeners and have them turn off. But they're probably going to stay tuned in to see what you'll say next. You remember this, how how vaunted the Gulf War was, how it was such a big deal. And I understand it was a cathartic experience for the United States at the time because, you know, the years following Vietnam era, the, the military had gradually started to, to build up again, but was still, you know, was still not quite yet in good standing until suddenly it was rocketed into, you know, eulogized prominence by Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. And suddenly everyone was, that was, that was the era, that's when the era of thank you for your service and all that crap started, right? Yep. And so, you know, we were, we were embarrassed. We were, we were gratified, but at the same time, supremely embarrassed because we hadn't been out there. And then we, they, we, do you remember when these guys came back? Four day war, right? Do you remember they were treated like, you know, as though they had returned from five years on the Hanoi Hilton. I mean, there it was, was, there, was yeah. there was a ticker tape parade in, in, I know. in New York City. I remember Schwarzkopf walking down the middle of the street that's, in his chocolate right. chip camis. Yeah. If you were in uniform in, in Southern California and you could not find a date on a Saturday night or, you know, you were just in the military and you could not find a date, there was something seriously wrong with you. And even I, even I could find a date. And I've heard rumors that even you could too, Dave. And I was other, just about to say, I don't, I don't think that was very long lived though for me. <laughs> That, it, was uh, a that, brief, that yeah, it was a brief surge, you know, <laughs> and so uh, right. until people found out we hadn't actually been there. It was difficult, uh, wasn't it, right? When we hadn't been there and all these guys coming back. And there was definitely this kind of supercilious arrogance of, you know, we were there, man, and joining a battalion where, which had a number of Gulf War veterans and that feeling of us and them, and they had been there. Now, of course, now, you know, after two decades of war, I just realized how ludicrous that was, how preposterous. And it still makes me angry when I think about these dipshits, you know, who really thought that they had been in combat. Um, but that's all they knew. But I love that. You know, have you seen the movie Anger Management? 
Yes. With, yeah, Adam Sondheim. I love that. Yep. I love that way. That dude's like, you know, they, the, the guy with PTSD, right? I'm not laughing at right. PTSD again. I don't mean to offend you. But the, the guy with PTSD and he's like, yeah, you know, I, every, I, every time I drift off, I'm, I'm hearing the screams again, the sound of helicopters and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm wide awake, wide awake. And Adam Sondheim's like, oh, shit, man, you know, Vietnam. And he goes, uh, no, Grenada. <laughs> Adam Sandler goes, Grenada, dude. <laughs> right, yeah. Wasn't that like 30 minutes long? <laughs> so, right. That's what I feel like when I hear people go, I'm a Gulf War veteran. I'm like, yeah, dude. Wasn't that like, yeah. I, I remember at TBS, we had some guys in our company that were Grenada vets. They were Army 82nd Airborne and then joined the Marine Corps and became officers. Yeah. They had Steve Banta and, yeah, yeah. There were a couple other of those guys. Yeah, Banta was a good dude. Not... Yeah, he was a good dude. I think he became a tanker. He did, poor bastard. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, there's, there's a, a career track with a dead end now. No kidding. But hey, they, he didn't have to go to IOC and do stupid hikes, right? He probably never no, hiked again. But I still remember that being a tanker then was highly sought after because they only had yeah. like two, they had two billets every company. So the guys who got mm-hmm. to go to tanks and it was not, they didn't mess around so much with this quality spread fiction. You know, it was, it, you, if you went into tanks, you were, you, you were normally in the top third and near the top of top uh, the top absolutely so yeah they, we had we had two guys that went tanks we had uh banta yeah and uh virus yeah. yeah. yep. mm-hmm. and then we had a couple amtrak slots and that was you know yeah the lion's share of it was infantry and artillery and i remember what the, the level of anxiety when it came to mos selection time you know at least for me and and we all had nightmares about you know, waking up as a motor T officer. You know, I think for the vast majority, it actually worked out well back then. I think they managed it well. And I say that because in the years since, I've come across a number of guys who are very disillusioned, sadly disappointed by the MOSs they got. And, you know, it's all very well to say, well, you're a Marine officer. Okay, I get it. But the point is that the guys saying that invariably got something that they wanted to do. And And don't get me wrong, you know, it's, I think there's a better way of determining horses for courses is what I'm saying. Some guys genuinely want to do the things that I know I am bad at or will not do well and vice versa. So I think there more, should be more scope for talent management, intelligent talent. And maybe there is now. I don't know how they do it at TBS. But back then, back then, you know, I think we were lucky. We had pretty human um, SPCs and a methodology that seemed to work for the most part. I don't remember any horror, horror stories, do you? I think, in fact, I, I remember one guy I know who got supply who was very unhappy with it. But for the most part, you know, most people got what they wanted. I don't know. Did you want artillery inexplicably? So I actually wanted to be an air tracker. Oh I God. had a, and Wait. I know it. I, uh, but I, but there's a story because you know me, there always is. My uncle was a career Marine, served 30 years, was an AM tracker. And when I was in high school, he had me come out during my spring break and he was the battalion commander of third Amtrak battalion at the time. And he took me to the field for like three days. First of all, this was in 1984. Could you ever imagine some 17 year old kid going out oh on an exercise for three yeah. days? And, and how about that poor Lieutenant that was like, Hey, here's the battalion commander's nephew. Take care of him for three days. Like what the fuck? You know, like yeah, yeah. they were probably so, so pissed, but I had the time of my life and I wanted to become an Amtracker because of that. But I was in, and I've told the story on, a, on another podcast too, but I was in the, the middle towards the bottom of the second, third. So I started strategically lowering my grade point average, let's call it. Did you really? That's yeah, so risky. So risky. 
Well, then I threw captain's bars on and went and, and inspected a company defense after that. <laughs> so I was on trajectory towards Yeah, but the know. thing is, you don't, they, it's a, I mean, human beings, I mean, it's a complex organization, right? So you may start dropping grades, but you don't know what everyone else is doing. Because I, right. trust me, I thought about that myself because I was, you know, I was hovering in the middle of the, of the top third, um, which just shows how incredibly intellectually challenged our class was. You know, I, I, as I went through these sleepless nights, I thought about doing that. But go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. How did, no, how did so, it work for you? So that's just, and then, you know, I, I kind of got called out for it, but dropping down into the third third, there were no, there were no track slots down there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. There's only a handful of them. They also had that statistic where they said like, you know, 95, 99% people get something in their top three. So I ended up putting tanks and Amtraks as my first and second, knowing that I wouldn't get in it. So they'd say like, well, you've got to give him his third, you know, or we're going to bust this great statistic that we have. And then Azel called me in one day and he's like, hey, listen, you're not getting your first and second choice. And you knew that you're going to be an artillery officer and you and may not like this it. right now, but this, this is the perfect MOS for you. He goes, you're just going to have to trust me on this. Why, why did he say it was the perfect MOS for you? You don't strike me as being anal and humorless. So why did he think you'd make a good artillery Nor officer? a mathematician. Right. So I think he thought that my personality and my sense of humor were probably not very well suited for the infantry. Hundred percent. Just wrong. thought that a, a problem solver, maybe, and I don't know what kind of experience he had with other artillery officers, but for whatever reason, he thought I'd be a good artillery officer. And maybe he went. thought you would leaven that community, you know, to inject some badly needed personality and 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 humor. Well, you know, I don't know how much time you have with the artillery community, but I will say this: there are two distinct personalities in the artillery community, right? There are the wonky geeks who not only know how to do everything, but know why they're doing it. And then there's people like me that just know how to do it. Yeah. And just because I just know how to do that, it, I can follow the instructions. That is, that's actually, a, I, I think that's actually 100% accurate. I think, um, I, I think some of the, actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of joking about person because I've known some of the, uh, the, the funniest personalities in the artillery. And, and I don't mean to bore your listeners, but just in case you know any of these guys, Mike Gann, John Satterfield, sure. you know, I mean, some of these dudes are truly hilarious. Yeah. Mike Gann went on to become one of the commanding officers of First Anglico after they brought Anglico back. Yeah. Yeah. Greg Martin so, was an artillery guy too with you. Greg Martin. Yeah. Matt Cooper, who I was on my very first podcast. He was a commanding officer yep. of Anglico too. As a matter of fact, he was my roommate when I was a lieutenant, one of my roommates when I was a lieutenant. And I remember him just like telling me like, oh, you Anglico guys, fuck you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes on to become the CEO of the first, of first Anglico. <laughs> and I, I got a chance to rub it back in his face. But I would love to. You know what? I don't even know if I, I know him because we've We've talked on the phone. We've we've exchanged emails and everything. I'm not even sure I've met him, but he's oh, you remember him? He's so he's ugly. he's a personality that's larger than life. <laughs> he is. He's one of my best friends. Yeah, he's an example of an artillery officer that doesn't know why you're doing anything, nor does he even know how to do it. So he's one of those anomalies. <laughs> <who doesn't know. laughs> Coop, I hope you're hearing this. I'm going to make sure I get. Well, it. you guys walk a you walk a pretty tight tightrope, you know, especially if you're a uh, FDO. I mean, there's, I often think, and I'm, I'm very grateful for this, is that generally speaking, as long as you don't have a company commander who is a complete dipshit, which back then you probably had a 50% chance. Yeah, you did. I think you did. I think you had a 50% uh, Because certainly the, the, the level of, you know, the average kind of the leadership mean was definitely lower than it is now by far. But nevertheless, as long as you didn't have a dipshit company commander, 
there was a kind of a safety mechanism for you as an infantry officer. It was peacetime. You know, you, if you had a decent XO, he was going to look over your shoulder. You were going to get some mentorship from the other lieutenants in the company. And your failures weren't exposed right away to the battalion commander. You know, and, and most company commanders have something invested in, in nurturing and mentoring their lieutenants because their failure is your failure. So all of this kind of combined to allow a number of us who maybe should have been weeded out early on to, to survive. But if you were... If you were a communications officer or a supply officer, think about that. I mean, you know this, and you're, mm-hmm. you're catapulted into a position of high visibility, high responsibility, and the sort of position that, that people notice, notice right away when things go wrong and are reluctant to, don't even notice when things go right. And, and in, a, in a sense, some of the key billets within the uh, artillery community, although it happens a little bit later you know, in, your, in your careers, you, you're out there on the... On, on the exposed edge. And I think that's probably what makes some of your community quite anal. Yeah. It's, it, there's also, it's dangerous too. You know, we have this, there's a saying that the artillery community eats its own. It's almost because we have to, because if you let incompetent officers continue to command, it invariably ends up with somebody getting hurt down the road. And so we're an exacting bunch. And, and one of the reasons we're an exacting bunch is because you can measure it. You can measure the success of artillery. You either are or are not hitting the target. You either are or are not firing on time. You either are or are not putting rounds into the impact area or, you know. How that say you are, that's a great point. Yeah, because there's a lot of squidginess in infantry tactics, right? If you're not firing live rounds. But uh, artillery, you know, that's your training. Yeah, there's no training rounds in artillery. But it was great. But, you know, as you and I talk about the old days, I want to lead into a question here. But and first of all, I want to tell everybody that's listening in case they don't already know this. You've written a book recently called When the Tempest Gathers. It's a fantastic story of your career full of leadership moments in leadership. I like to see those crystallizing moments. It's almost embarrassing to ask you these questions because it's all in the book. So if anyone listening has not read it yet, uh, When the Tempest Gathers, you can get it on Amazon. And if you do get it, you better leave it a five-star review and write something nice about it. Otherwise, I will come find you. But from Mogadishu to the fight against ISIS, a Marine Special Operations Commander at War, I have read this book. I Not only have I read it, but I've listened to it on Audible. So I've, I feel like I've read it once and listened to it once. Which I read, extremely, by the way. Extremely painful listening to you read a book, by the way. <laughs> really? Uh, Come on, don't tell me that. Well, I thought you did a great job, actually. I thought you did a great job. It was, it's it, not it, easy, man. Yeah, Especially when it's it, your no, own No, it's not. It's not. It, it, it's it probably really, the most, it, me it was more difficult than writing the book. Reading it out loud, hands down, more difficult. I, I used to I dread those too. sessions. And it's not something you can time condense either. I mean, it's just, it's going to take what it takes to read however many pages are in the book. I'm really surprised you don't have a picture of me with my captain's bars from TBS in there. I was a little disappointed by that, but whatever, we'll let that slide. Hey, but, let me, let me know. just jump in and make an editorial comment real quick. So sure. like, even if you don't read the book and you don't get it on Audible, please just give it a five-star rating on Amazon because there's always like a little pile of ass clowns who go around giving one-star ratings to people who write books. And there's nothing, there's nothing more painful. I mean, it's happened to me, actually, there's one particular ass clown who, who gave me a one-star rating, and, uh, and, and by some sleuthing, this makes me sound obsessed. It wasn't Matt Cooper, was it? No, it wasn't Matt Cooper, okay. no, but we, I knew who it was. It was a guy we'd fired, I fired in Iraq for uh, uh, stealing and cowardness. Apart from that, he was a pretty good Marine, but he... <laughs> 
you know, and so he bounces back and, and gives me a one star and that, and you know, that it, it sounds ridiculous, but that the reviews that my editor was hounding me about that. Hey, I was like, dude, I cannot change that. He's done it. And Amazon is, is Amazon is fucking lackadaisical. Sorry, you can cut out the F word. No, lackadaisical. Hey, fuck that. Stay. Yeah, totally slipshod about about ensuring that these reviews are by people you know who've read the book or even have have legitimate things to say right so anyway so you you can look at any any offense up with this little cadre of trolls who drag the average down so where i'm heading on this get it if you guys are too busy to read or listen it takes a second go to amazon yeah right when the tempest gathers and give it a five-star rating yeah, and while you're at it, go to Apple, iTunes, and give this podcast a five-star rating too, please. So, so there you are. Yeah, a lot of good right. done in 45 right. seconds. But, you know, so in the beginning part of your book, you talk about your time in Mogadishu, and and I was there too. We overlapped, but we didn't see each other because you were part of the Mew, and I was part of the Fly-In Forces. And I know we've talked about this also in the interest of full disclosure. You and I have gotten together a few times over the past year and had, at any one sitting, we'll have... 11D martinis together and yeah, start sure. telling some good stories each, right? Each and start telling good stories. But there's some really good stories about your time as a lieutenant there. But I want to ask you a more pointed question about your time as a lieutenant or maybe even as a captain and, and ask you, other than what you talked about in the book, do you remember anything from your first five years in your career that were particularly crystallizing moments that stayed with you forever in terms of leadership that could be valuable for a young leader who's listening to this to take away? Yeah, ab- absolutely, Dave. And, you know, some of these, a uh, couple of these are in the book. I'm going to give you, I think, probably four examples, and I'll go through them, you know, fairly quickly. Some of these are in the book, and that's simply because when I wrote the book, I wanted to, you know, write things down that I thought were less significant. You know, I want to lead off by saying something that I wish I'd known as a lieutenant or really taken seriously. You know, you always get told, people always tell you, hey, you got to have balance in your life. Well, a lot of us don't. And because we are, we have similar personalities, we're driven to succeed and we're always, we're always balancing that. I think most of us do is in a healthy manner as far as balancing our personal ambition against our, you know, the loyalty you have to those around you. I don't see a lot of guys who violate that. What, what I do see is that invariably you lose track of that balance and the Marine Corps becomes a be all and end all. And the problem is, as you and I have seen among our peers, you will be at the mercy of someone who lacks your ability or talent or intellect and simply just doesn't like you and will scupper your career. And it'll be so frustrating because you poured so much into it and you will feel devastated or, or, or you will try and avoid that happening. And while all that's going on, you know, a lot of people start to lose the enjoyment of the journey, right? And I've seen that even it might not be eternal, I mean, terminal, or uh, it might be something they recover from, but nevertheless, they go through hell. And I, I've seen that guys being passed over promotion, whether or not they bounce back. And it's a shame because I, I wish I'd had a more emotionally intelligent attitude to this and understood that that might happen and not state my belief in myself and my ego too closely to career progression. I, maybe that's too strong a word or rather to success in, in, a, in a particular profession. So that's number one. You know, I struggle with, as you know, I've been through a couple of tragedies, family tragedies, and I don't regret anything in my career, but I certainly wish that I'd had more time with the you know, two people in my close family that I, that I had lost and that I had made more time for them. 
But getting back specifically to your question, yeah, I'm going to give you just some very quick vignettes. So number one, all right, it's about disillusionment. And I talked a little bit about, you know, the path to disillusionment on the casualty replacement company. And unfortunately, things just kept going downhill from there. So I got sent out to Okinawa. This was 1991. I got sent to 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, hell in a helmet. And it was the one battalion on the West Coast that had missed the Gulf War. All right, so think about this. I mean, we just talked about the atmosphere of, you know, everyone going to war, everyone's a hero, except for these poor bastards. They're stuck on the rock and they're stuck there. What's going to be a six month unit deployment program deployment, you know, which is we we remember those, right? Turned out to be 13 months. They didn't have ammunition to train with. They've got nothing to do except sit on the rock and drink very cheap alcohol, which, you know, all of which you will you will remember, right? So, no, so I don't the, remember any of that. So the battalion, the battalion was in cataclysmic state. It might have survived. Things might have been better if the battalion commander was worth a shit. But unfortunately, he was one of the biggest alcoholics of, of the whole group. You know, one of these dudes who it's very important to him to appear, appear cool to the junior Marines. He called them by his first, their first name, loved drinking with them. And, and it was just, yeah, it was awful, awful atmosphere to join. Uh, a battalion. You know, I t- I'll tell you, though, that by then I, I was incredibly disheartened. Where the saving grace, I, and, and I, I locked onto these people as kind of the moral anchor points where a handful of people, it, it wasn't the majority of people there who were going down the tubes and, and being assholes. And most of the lieutenants out there were assholes, assholes to the new joints. And, you know, totally different atmosphere than, than most units but these guys were freaking arrogant. They, I think it, you know, it, was all, it all came together, right? You've got bad leadership from above. You've got, a, you've, you've got a sense of frustration fueled by alcohol. You're not training. You've got no mission. So who do you take it out on? You've got you know, the new guys coming in. It happens at the most junior level, and it happened at, at the officer level. But my point is that even in the worst situations like that, you always have a group of dudes whose character and personality carry them through and, and make them buoy them, you know. So as, as you're walking, watching everyone else kind of sink, these guys are the ones still on the surface and, 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 and helping keep you afloat. You know, one of those was my platoon sergeant. I was infinitely lucky. You know, I, we've all had good and bad platoon sergeants. And having been prior enlisted, I feel, you know, I feel uh, justified in saying, hey, listen, not all senior Enlisted guys are seasoned and savvy and, and competent, just like all officers are. But I was fortunate that I had a really good platoon sergeant. He was only a sergeant, but absolutely made it his duty to, to kind of keep me on the right side and, and mentor me. Um, same thing with uh, my guide. Back then, we had platoon guides. You know, so it didn't, and, and I had one squad leader who was worth a shit. You know, the other three were pretty abysmal. <laughs> it was like, but that was enough, you know? And then among my peers... There was one lieutenant who actually lives, who lives around the corner from me now, Bill Lucas, who was, you know, those of you, some of you may know Bill Lucas. He's, he can be irascible and difficult and a complete ass, but he is a good human being and a great Marine, you know, showed me the example that I needed at the time. You know, that, that was kind of an implicit lesson to me. Don't be one of the ass clowns who sinks under the waves and always keep an eye out for the new guys who are coming in and struggling and, and, uh, and, and remember how it felt. Um, and the, the example, the impact, those few, that f- small handful of guys had, uh, I just cannot overstate. And I can't overstate the sense that battalion, the state that battalion was in. Jesus, 
you know, company commanders, I know it sounds like I'm just bitching, but it is true. Anyone who's there with me will back me up 100%. Company commanders who are awful, you know, everyone got drunk every evening, which, you know, is fine when you and I are in, now in our retirement years and in old town Alexandria, but it's not necessarily fine when you've got a job to do <laughs> during the week. Okay, so I, I want to just say something about that whole topic about new joints coming into a unit, because now I'm going to interject my, my experiences in the civilian world as a leader. You know, I, I own my own business, so I, I have people that work there. And the idea of hiring somebody new into my organization and then treating them like shit, I couldn't ever imagine doing anything other than welcoming somebody new that I have, we have mutually agreed to work together and then all of a sudden treating them like shit. And for what? And then I look, I listen to what you just said. And I remember back to hazing and, and all of the things. And I think to myself, okay, you want some advice as a new leader listening to this? I'm going to tell you this right now. Stop allowing people to haze and be assholes to new joints. Instead, how about the, how about the exact opposite? How about you celebrate the new PFCs that are coming into your unit and you embrace them and make them feel part of the team that they have just worked so hard to become part of. Like it's not your job anymore to decide whether or not that person should be a Marine. They are a Marine. They have earned the title. How about celebrating their arrival and making them feel welcome and making them be part of the team? I look back and I think to myself, what disservices we have done, what a disservice we've done to our organization where we've allowed that to go on. It's just so stupid. We wondered why we had 30% first-term attrition. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you, you think back to those days, so, you know, having worked at the Recruit Depot, which I can talk about in a moment, you know, the high point, the high point of those kids' lives is when they stand on the break deck and they get called Marines mm -hmm. first time. I know that sounds like corny, but when you're there and you've seen it, you know it's true. You know, and you watch parents hug them and cry and everything. It is a powerful moment. You know, even if you hate the Marine Corps, it is a yeah. tremendously powerful moment. They found a sense of purpose and meaning. But thereafter, the institution tended to let them down. Okay, so they went from there to SOI. SOI has changed now, I know, for the better. But back then, you know, they didn't necessarily get the best instructors in SOI. So their experience of leadership hits a pinnacle while they're at, at recruit training and thereafter starts to go downhill. And then you run into this phenomenon where the salty Lance Corporal thinks that he really is better than the dude coming in, just like the salty first lieutenants felt they were better than us second lieutenants coming in and starts to act accordingly. And then, you you know, things start to go south. I'll say one other thing on that, Dave. You know, when we, we say, hey, it all begins and ends with leadership, and I know that sounds like a hackneyed phrase, but I'm just going to give you a couple of examples, all right? Again and again, I have seen the exponential effect that a junior leader can have for better or for worse in a unit. You have seen units go feral, right? I have. And they go feral very quickly, especially in combat. With all, you know, combat accelerates that process, but it can happen equally in peacetime. I've seen it on the recruit depot with evil things happening across a company because the whole company's gone feral because they had the wrong guy in position as company commander. They had the wrong series commanders. And then in, in combat, yeah, you know, when you've got everything else weighing on you, you've got the literal weight of all the equipment you're carrying, you've got the frontal lobe numbing, sense of fear, tiredness, anger. 
you've got that sense of uh, cultural dissonance with those around you, you know, and, and the sense of uh, that you you are there to protect those who look and sound like you and come from the similar background and fuck everyone else. If you have a leader who lets that to slip, then very quickly it becomes it, it gathers tsunami like momentum. And I'll just I'll show up in a moment. I'll give you one example, not from my, you know, I'll give you two examples. Okay, three. All right, three. I'll stop at three. I'll make them quick. Hey, you know, we uh, we learned about me lying, right? When we were at TBS, and I was talking mm-hmm. to an IOC class three days ago. I said, "You guys still learn about me lying?" And they do, but we learned about it in a very kind of superficial way. And uh, I was writing an article a couple of years ago on war crimes. You know, very uh, you know amusing topic. But you know, I started really research the background to me lying. And here's an amazing fact about this, Dave: that platoon from the Americal division was a good platoon before this happened. A guy, former army officer who subsequently became a New York Times, um, wrote for the New York Times, did a detailed study of every one of those dudes. Above average intelligence, above average, they weren't called ASVAB scores, but they were, you know, they, their intelligence uh, quotient when they arrived, uh, when they came in the military, much higher score, high, uh, higher percentage of high school graduates than most draft draftee platoons. That platoon had done well in Hawaii during pre-deployment training, had received, had personally been singled out by the battalion commander as performing, you know, well and having high morale. And then Milai happens. And, you know, if you haven't read the story of Milai, it's pretty sickening. You cannot imagine American soldiers did this. There's nothing in that that's exaggerated. This isn't a novel. It's an investigation I read. Right. You know, women as young as 10, girls being raped by, you know, gang raped by American soldiers, 531 villages killed. Chief Warren Sir um, Thompson, who I think is an all-time American hero, if you know the story, but he was a, a Warren officer flying overhead and his gun is telling him, hey, sir, you're not going to believe what's happening here. And he lowers his helicopter between Cali's troops and, and the villagers and he tells his gunners, open fire. And they're like, but sir, there are villagers. And he goes, no, on the Americans, fucking kill the next one that does anything. And Thompson was vilified. He was called a traitor. He had life threats, death threats rather. Whereas Callie, read what happened to Callie. He was fucking made, you know, chairman of the Rotary Club of the local town. There was, you know, millions of, of petition, uh, million signature petitions to have him absolved. Um, he was pardoned. Anyway, where I'm heading on this, Callie is what went wrong with our platoon. You had a bunch of dudes who were like you and me, or like your listeners, and Callie came in. And if you read that story, it's a painful story. He starts slapping villagers around in front of his guys. And they're like, hey, this is okay. And then he comes across a a woman getting raped by one of his guys. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And so they think, okay, that's that's the norm. That's all right. And then he himself shoots a farmer in the head. Just, you know, he's busy holding his weapon. And he he, just for fun, he shoots this dude in the head in front of his platoon. And a week later is when the massacre happened. So when people challenge this whole thing about the, the effect leadership has and these, you know, Americans are intrinsically inherently better than other people, they need to read that investigation. Yeah. And I think the article you were talking about writing was when you talked about the incident in Mali, right? Was that your article that you wrote? On uh, crime? Was that your no, no, that was another one, actually. That was oh, so okay. that. But thank you for, um, yeah, for like advertising articles. No, the, the uh, article I wrote was it was published in The Atlantic. And it okay. was, uh, you know, the problem is this, you, you've seen my articles, right? I, 
I call out bad policies of both of any administration. I have written as vehemently against policies in the Biden administration as I did under Trump. It doesn't, I don't give a shit about political parties, but the problem is when I write something, I always get vilified by people who happen to support that party. I happened to write an article, it was during the Trump administration when he was eulogizing all of these war criminals, right? But Haney, who was turned in, he was an army lieutenant in Afghanistan, turned in by his own soldiers, tremendous amount of moral courage for the way he treated Afghan civilians, found guilty of murder, um, locked up in Leavenworth. Trump pardoned him and then made some comment about, you know, hey, I can understand how he wanted to do that. Then, of course, Gallagher, I'm not going to go into that story. Uh, and yeah. there a couple of other dudes, you know. And so the, there was this weight of opinion backed by Fox News that, hey, man, these guys, it's okay. They're, you know, we put them in this position. It's okay to do this kind of stuff. So, you know, I just wrote this article saying, no, actually, it's not okay. And when these guys do things like that and they get eulogized, it undercuts all of us who, you know, who try to keep our moral shit together, if that's the proper term, you know, and try to do the same for those who work for us. And I and I make one other comment here, Dave, that I think it's worth calling out here because I've had I've heard all kinds of bullshit from people about, you know, why I shouldn't be down on uh, on people who want to uh, shoot the indige. I have come across guys. So, you know, fast forward, all right, uh, the march up. 2003 uh, invasion. I, I was with 7th Marines at the time. And I can tell you, we killed a lot of civilians who did not need to die. Period. Period. Checkpoints. We had this ridiculous fear of VBIDs before VBIDs even became a major thing. And commanders, I don't blame the Marines, commanders were allowing or even encouraging dudes to shoot vehicles if they were in any doubt. And uh, I saw this time and time again. Awful scenes. Well, you know what? Fast forward 20 years, and I, a lot of these guys, Marines, you know, I, who I knew personally, junior Marines back then, are struggling. I know of two cases of suicide that were directly related to guys who just couldn't deal with what they were allowed to do back then. And unfortunately, I've seen a number of battalion commanders involved in that fiasco debacle who showed total fucking lack of moral courage and leadership who made general officers. And, you know, it seemed to think that it was some kind of help build their chest beating image of being combat vets to leave a trail of death behind them, even if, a, you know, that trail was, com uh, was comprised mainly of non-combatants. The psychological, moral injury, as you and I both know, is every bit as real and often more insidious and worse than physical injury. Yeah, I agree. And we're going to get into some general officer stuff later, for sure. Yes. Yeah, so the article is called, um, When You're in Command, Your Job is to Know Better. It was published in The Atlantic in, it's like Memorial Day of 2019. And then the other article that you mentioned, Dave, which is a great one, it's about um, organizational culture, is called yeah. uh, How to Fix a Broken Soft Culture. Right. Don't get turned off by the title. I'm not pretending to be an expert. I'm just saying that when culture goes south, it is really hard to fix. No, I think it's true. And I don't know if we fixed it back from Lieutenant Kelly. I mean, these things are still happening. And I think there is a certain cultural aspect to it. I think there's a, we can get into this too, but there's a culture going on right now that I don't necessarily know if I, I like very much. I'm not going to say agree, disagree. I just, I'm not so sure I like it. When I say I'm not so sure I like it, I mean that literally, like, I'm not so sure that I like some of the culture stuff that's going on right now. There's a lot of social media backlash and rightfully so over, you know, accountability and things like that. And I definitely want to get into that. I do want to mention though, that in the context of some other articles that you've written, 
in the vein of this. I mean, your article from back in 2010, I remember reading when you were at, I think, War College. It was um, yeah. Descent in the Military Profession. It was I mean, my corporate and graduate article. And subsequently yeah, I mean, had me beaten like a pinata for almost a year. <laughs> I mean, you were excoriated by scholars, and, and but yet retained in the Marine Corps and given command of a uh, of Marsoc Regiment. So Credit to the institution, and I, yeah, I will always right. remember that. And I guess that's what I was going to get at with the culture is when I say I'm not so sure, there's parts of me that think like I am sure about our culture because we still do embrace some independent thinking and disagreeing at a level that is respectful and adds to making our organization, the Marine Corps and the DOD, any branch of the service better. I loved that article. I'll never forget where I was sitting when I read it. I can close my eyes and and see where I was sitting when I read that. And I thought to myself, that, you know, this is ballsy. It makes me want to come back and and ask you some other questions about some times in your life that that I know you've either told me about or part of your book. But I think one of the things that's adding to the culture right now is this accountability issue. And you have some stories from your past that are relatable to younger leaders because you're the battalion commander of one three. Yeah. Right. And right when you were getting ready to deploy to Iraq, you relieved some captains in your battalion and replaced them with lieutenants. Tell us about that, because that's relatable to young leaders and it's not very common. There are, there are so many things, Dave, I wish that we had been, we discussed more when we were lieutenants, one of which is the hardest, one of the hardest decisions is the hardest decision you make. I think if you're a human being, if you're, you know, is to relieve someone, because I already mentioned Mm -hmm. how much all of us invest in our careers and how it, how it becomes almost inseparable from our views of ourselves. So to come to the point where you're looking a guy in the face and saying, Hey dude, you, you do not belong in this job. You're a good human being, but you do not belong in this job and removing him is a difficult thing. And if it's not a difficult thing, you shouldn't be a leader. You know, you should feel angst, but you shouldn't, run into paralysis. And I have not always made the right decision. Sometimes those decisions are easy. You know, one of the commanders I relieved was essentially a criminal. You know, I mean, he, you know, turned out investigation that he was stealing, you know, things like, you know, while we deployed, he was, um, this sounds ridiculous, but so, so that his fob, his fob would be resupplied once a week with honey buns. You know, you know how it is. I mean, you remember Wars of fought, you know, I mean, Napoleon said, uh, uh, you know, when an army marches on its stomach, the U.S. Army mm-hmm. operates off rippets and honey buns and, and charms, or at least used to back then, right? Right. So he would hoard all the honey buns, and so none of his Marines could get them and, and would eat them all, and, you know, various other things. He watched pornography on government computers. So, you know, I mean, it was an easy decision. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a layup. Yeah, like, he's a, he, yeah, he's a shithead. But interestingly, how it came to my attention his lieutenants came to me one day, and uh, I'm going to forget, we were in PTA, Pagalua training area in, uh, in Hawaii, and I came back to my hooch to find three lieutenants sitting there like, sir, we got to talk to you. And, and it was uh, three lieutenants and, um, and their first sergeant. And I, I could sense they were telling the truth. And also, you and I both know the way the Marine Corps operates, we always, always default to the side of loyalty. I mean, we are a very hierarchical organization. And mm-hmm. so when you get a group of dudes like that who are pros, but they come together and say, yeah, enough's enough, you have to take them seriously. And then subsequent investigation showed that everything that they had said and more was true. So that was an easy case. But the other cases were not so easy. 
but before you move on to that other case, can I just can I unwind that for a second? Because I just want to come back to the story real quick about the three lieutenants and the first sergeant, because I'm I'm assuming that they're in there talking about their company commander and the balls that that takes. Three lieutenants to sit. I mean, you're basically you're on the borderline of mutiny at that point. And so, you know, I'd love to just hear you talk for a few minutes about the moral courage of that group that came in there and talked about because they those four men basically took their careers in their own hands because you could have very easily just summarily dismissed all of them and gave them all double signed fitness reports and, and drummed them out of the Marine Corps for insubordination and, and a lack of loyalty to their commanding officer. It made such an impression on me that I, uh, that actually prompted me years later, actually just a few months ago, to write another article called um, Leading Up, you know, How to Manage a Toxic Leader. You know, I'll get back to this specific case, but one of the things we don't do well in the Marine Corps, we don't lead, we don't teach how to lead up, right? You and I both know, we learned, remember back then, because we're intellectually challenged, we had to learn leadership by acronym. You know, what was it? JJ did tie buckle. <laughs> and so what you had to do was memorize that. And you were, you know, wow. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were up and going and you, there was nothing that could trip you up as far as leadership problems. But the really tough thing, and we all have to deal with this, not, not even just with bad leaders. You have to lead up, right? You've got to help shape the guy above you. I, I mean, I, it may sound like arrogance, but it isn't. For the good of the institution, you have to work with him and shape him. And if he's getting off track, help bring him back in before it becomes to uh, you know, a, a point where he's getting relieved. Now, if he's a criminal, like in this case, you have no option. Right. And, and then, yes, you know, in, in this article, I talk about that, you know, that there is a point where you have to confront him. And that takes moral courage. And then afterwards, you, for the sake of the institution, you, you've got to do something about it. Uh, your, your first loyalty is to that institution, not to any individual that you happen to work for. Uh, but people right. forget that. And too often, they just buckle down, they hunker down, they think, shit, this guy, I can outlive this guy, or you know, I'll, I'll outlast this guy, he'll move on. And so he goes on, he gets promoted, and his, his casualty radius increases every rung he takes up the ladder, right? That's one thing we forget. We just think about, hey, my experience is shitty, but it's going to be over. And we forget about the institution and everyone lies ahead. So it is important, but it does take, you're right, it can backfire on you. And I've known cases where it has. I've known one case in particular where uh, I was a lieutenant. We had a, you know, I'd left a battalion by then, but I was tracking this closely. We had a battalion commander who was really, really bad. And uh, to the point where he... You know, it can only, to now it would be described as sexual assault. You know, he kind of forced himself on or tried to force himself on the fiance of one of his lieutenants and 29 palms, uh, one drunken evening in the BOQ. So this wasn't, you know, this wasn't penny ante bullshit. You know, he yelled too much or anything. He was, he had no place being a battalion commander. So his guys went to the regimental XO. It, it did finish one lieutenant's career. The, the guy who actually was the ringleader of that. And, you know, the regiment OXO basically tried to keep a lid on it. But sure enough, as normally happens, this battalion commander did something even more heinous, which brought him to the attention of the division, and he was launched. And soon after, had to leave the Marine Corps. Which, a shame for the lieutenant that brought it up, but... He got out, and uh, oddly enough, became a preacher in Texas. <laughs> he said, you know <laughs> him. You know him very well. But that finished him. Yeah, he was scuppered after that yeah to your point dave you know hopefully people i mean there has to be an understanding within institutionally within our and it isn't commonly understood that that is absolutely acceptable when it comes to a certain point that those who are senior within that organization 
need to bring a commander's errant behavior to the attention of his superiors. That's an obligation. That isn't an option. It should be an obligation. But too often, you know, we, we dismiss it. And he gets, and you know what? I don't think the reason why we dismiss it, and, and I want to get back to one of your earlier points, because I, I agree with you. You know, you made a comment about that, you know, our culture within the Marine Corps is not broken. I would agree with you. I think we're too centralized in our decision making. I think there mm-hmm. are plenty of things wrong with our culture. I don't think it's fundamentally broken and actually had, you know, I know this sounds like horrible name dropping, but General Nella happens to be one of my favorite people. And I wrote an article, another one, right, the other day called Losing Small Wars, How U.S. Military Culture Leads to Defeat. And if you haven't read it, Dave, you need to read it. That's actually, you recently sent that to me. I cannot keep up with all of your writing. Uh, you you write faster than I read. Well, that's another problem. No, no, no. no. I mean, I totally understand but... that. But anyway, so General <laughs> Nella read that. And he sent me an email at like four o'clock in the morning that I woke up to, you know, just basically saying, I've read this twice now. I don't agree with everything you say, blah, blah, blah. And I sent him an email. This is so chicken shit because he is one of my favorite people. But I sent him, hey, sir, I think you're wrong, blah, blah. I did say, hey, sir, I don't think you're part of the problem, but I think you're wrong, essentially. Yeah. And you know what? About a day later, he said, hey, Andy, I've been thinking about this. I reread it. And I said, yeah, I, I agree with you. You do have a problem. I mean, we, not you, no, not you have a problem. We have a problem, which I thought was, you know, I mean, tremendous of him to say that. But here's what I think. I think the good is this. The good things are the majority of, of Marines, Marine officers are, are, are fundamentally great Marines and good human beings, right? Mm-hmm. It is arguable, but I went up far more so than uh, a cross-section of the U.S. population. Something about our culture works is what I'm saying. And you and I have both had a taste of that. You have had more experience of that than I have because you get a, an opportunity to make that comparison all the time and have done for a long time between, you know, those in the civilian world and, and uh, those your military peers. So that's the good thing. Here's where I think we get tripped up. I, I think we need to do a better job of talent management within uh, among officers. I think mm-hmm. that intellect is more important than we in Marines ever have really acknowledged. I think it's hugely important. And, t- and I don't mean, you know, what I mean by this, okay, emotional intelligence, but also I mean intellectual curiosity. And where I've seen, where I've worked for bad leaders, it, you know, hasn't necessarily been they're stupid. They've been quite bright and then within a narrow, a very narrow parameters, but they have, they lack imagination and they've never been encouraged to expand that net. And I'll just make a comment on this. When I was um, at the School of Advanced Warfighting, General Van Riper, okay, who, had, who, could be, who could be quite notorious within the Marine Corps, but was supremely an intellect. I remember he came to talk to us, our class, because his son, Steve Van Riper, who's, who's an awesome dude, was in our class. And I remember Van Riper Sr. saying, hey, guys, how often do you spend reading? And we're like, ah, sure, I was so busy, you know, and, but, and when we're not at Saul, you know, we got all this other shit to do. And he said, that's absolute bullshit. How often do you spend PTing a day? you know, like an hour, at least an hour. He goes, all right. So you spend an hour working on your bodies and no time working on your minds, right? And, and what is that, you know, and, and you think your minds are going to improve, but it's, it's commensurate. And so that had me thinking. The other thing he said was, um, he said, you guys, how many of you uh, have been to see a play recently? How many of you been to a concert? And that, you know, I don't mean tampon and the bleeders or uh, Dickie and the foreskins. I mean, you know, a, a classical music concert or uh, of course no one had I had been to the sound of music 
with my kids, but I didn't want to raise my hand at the time. And but his point was this: Here, you guys, you you are you more than anyone should be should be purveyors of American culture because you are defenders of that culture, and you know you have to uh, understand professions other than your own. Another thing that brings this home to me that I do think, and I'm not just saying this because I'm uh, in a British background, but the Brits are better than us and the Australians. We have this inherent dislike of people from certain professions, the media, number one, uh, non-government organizations, number two. We call them, you know, tree-hugging, granola eaters, and the media is always the enemy, right? <laughs> the media is always undercutting us without recognizing that they have a job to do too. They both, in those professions, without all the structure of protection that we have, have to put their lives on the line in combat zones. And they often know more in terms of real intelligence about what's going on than we do. You know, look at the drone strike. Look at just the example in Kabul. Everyone hates the New York Times and the military. You know, a bunch of left lefties, liberals. New York Times saved our ass. We don't like the fact that we had our faces rubbed in the fact that yeah. we, we fucked up a drone strike. It, it wasn't a dynamic strike. We had eight hours to corroborate intelligence. You read, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a total fuck up. Anyone who has not had anything to do with strikes, I'll challenge anyone to, you know, to, to call me afterwards and say, oh, you're wrong. No, bullshit. No one yeah. was under that much pressure. But look at, but Millie calls it a righteous strike like he's some fucking 18-year-old. I mean, holy shit. This is embarrassing. And who yeah. is the voice? Who, who keeps us honest? The New York Times. Do we, would we rather have been covered up? Does anyone really want that? You know, that's why that's just one example. Okay. You know, sure. my point is that we've got to accept these other people who are different than us in the world. And it starts with intellectual curiosity. It really does. I'll even give, I'll even give a more simple example than that. Right. So how many times have you or anybody, when I say you, I mean a listener, but I'm also going to include you too, Andy. Right. Me too. How many times have we motherfucked another branch of the service? Oh, those stupid berets on the army. They, they salute inside. They do all this stuff. Okay. On the surface, it's kind of funny to make fun of that stuff. And that's what we do as a service. We poke fun at each other a little bit. And we're allowed to do that a little bit. But if you take a step back and you ask yourself if you really believe that just because somebody wears a beret or a hat differently or they, their uniforms look different than ours, like... That's just their culture, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just different than yours. 100%. Yeah. And so do you think the army is really a bad organization? No, they're not. I mean, do they have their problems like everybody? Of course they do. My company has its own problems. Everything has its own problems, right? But the army is not a bad organization. The Air Force is not a bad organization. But you talk about two completely different cultures between the Air Force and the Marine Corps. It doesn't make us better. It doesn't make them worse or vice versa. It's just a respect for the different cultures. You expand that out into what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I, I think that aligns exactly what I'm talking about, that we promote too many people who, who, without forcing them to develop intellectual curiosity. And, yeah. and I'm going to get back to talk about exactly what you're talking about, the interest service uh, piece. But, you know, another thing is, and this really disappointed me, Dave. I mean, you remember back when we were lieutenants, so we were, I'm trying to think, yeah, so, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter, but it, it was, happened to be George Bush Sr., who was the president when we were commissioned, you know, something I'm sure he's uh, eternally regretful for. But, uh, you know, and then subsequent Clinton administrations, two Clinton administrations, et cetera, et cetera. But do, do you ever remember us having angry discussions about politics? 
back yeah. then. And it wasn't because we were stupid. We we just got it. You know, it's like, hey man, we may not like this or but we're all Marines and that's more important than anything. And yet, beginning, you know, about four or five years ago, I've watched Marines become increasingly polarized. I have been vilified, attacked by Marines. Not because I don't mind it. I don't mind if they say, hey Melvin, you're full of shit. I don't agree with you. You you know, you're a fucked up Marine. You're a lousy leader. I'm good with that. <laughs> what I don't like is people accusing me of being partisan when I call out policies for being fucked up. You wouldn't believe the shit, you know, emails that I have, you probably would, from both sides, which kind of makes me feel good because it means I'm balanced. Personally, I, look, I'm a strange cat, okay? I noticed that. I'd, I'd eat that up. I, I mean, I would know that I was doing something right if I was getting attacked like that. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you know. no, I no. Even actually, I remember one time on uh, you posted you were you were ill-advised enough to post one of my articles on Facebook. I, it was kind of amusing. One of your friends, I hope he's you know maybe he still is one of your Facebook. Just got so it was about politicization of the military. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. It was about yeah. I think it was about the uh, Theodore Roosevelt incident. But I was you know my point was this: doesn't matter what administration. My point was, hey, we've got to keep a really, a really sharp line between political partisanship and our profession. We cannot be sucked into this. That was my point, which I thought was unarguable. And this knucklehead, you know, sorry if he's a close friend of yours, missed that point totally and proved exactly what I was saying. And uh, was saying the most incredibly, you know, vindictive things about me. And, you know, he was going to hunt me down. And you're like, hey, dude, if you want his address, I'll give it to you. I'll probably be down there drinking yeah. 11 give, more give, uh, give him a call. Up. You know, I'm sure he want to talk to you, but he probably doesn't want to respond to you. Such <laughs> I think I did clown. say that, too. I think yeah. I was like, hey, I'll give you his you, number. You, if you really you're you're kind of an ass clown. So he doesn't typically waste his time talking to morons. But other than that. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, they, that disappoints me. And hopefully we're going to see that. You know, we're going to see a reversal of that. And I can't help thinking that that undermines our position as leaders. We are too often reflexively, you know, this, again, this isn't a partisan statement. We are too often reflexively right wing, right? Just reflexively, mm -hmm. yeah. like tap your knee and, and your foot flies for it. That's the way the average Marine is. It's like, ah, oh, that's so fucked up. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I would be saying the same, the same thing if it happened to be reflexively left wing. We shouldn't be reflexively fucking anything. We should be thinking human beings. But many of us are not. And, and I haven't put my finger completely on it, but I suspect a lot of it is we just, we still promote too many stupid people. And, and then the people who are not stupid, we don't encourage them to think outside. You know, I hate that term outside the box. We do not I, encourage right. them to think laterally. But getting back to your point, great example, all right, service parochialism. The Marine Corps has continuously, I mean, we do, we drag our feet as joint officers generally speaking. And, and you know what, there's a healthy aspect of that. I, I, I laugh and I've used the phrase myself that your joint tour was going to be a Marine Corps appreciation tour. I, mm -hmm. I use it only half jokingly. I understand there's some truth in that because we're a different culture. Nevertheless, you're 100% right. You know, the, the smartest officer I ever worked for was a naval officer. Big fat dude, a service new guy, but he was hands down the smartest, the most charismatic you know, not, not necessarily the best leader, but certainly the brightest and the guy who could just get shit done, the most consummate staff officer and could, you know, carry along people along with him. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in the special operations community and I've had more officers, general officers, at least as many general officers from, say, Army Special 
Forces Command as my boss as Marine Generals. Honestly, by and large, Army SF Generals, smarter, more flexible, more intellectually curious. Okay, that sounds like blasphemy. I'm not saying that Phil to say it's not the same, you know, among officers below the rank of general officer, but for some reason in the Marine Corps, when we promote guys to general officer, there's something wrong with the filter. And that isn't because I didn't make general officer. There's something wrong with that filter. We have, we do promote some of the right guys. We promote a lot of the wrong guys. And I know we love going, I'm not talking about guys who are assholes, but I've, you know, I've sat in audiences and listened to Marine generals and heard Marines around going, yeah, they kick ass, he's great. And I'm thinking, he hasn't said anything that has inspired me or, or asked me, you know, who challenged me. And yet I can name half a dozen Army SF generals who every time they speak, and even two SEALs, for Christ's sake, yeah. every time they speak, I learn something. I, I would be when, struggling. I would be struggling to name a Marine general. I'll tell any junior leader that's listening out there right now, do not dismiss your counterparts in the other services just because they don't look like you, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a hoodie in the blow of your song about that, but whatever. So, <laughs> sorry. There's a hoodie song right. for everything, Dave. Right, because they don't look like you, right? But seriously, I mean, and I had a very similar situation when I was a captain. I was an Anglo Cotet commander out on a Mew, and I was on the same ship as the Navy SEAL platoon. And they sort of figured out that I had a capability that they didn't have on their Navy SEAL team. And they very quickly figured out that the Anglo Cotet was, wasn't part of the BLT, and we really didn't have a mission unless the Mew commander wanted me to go do something. And I was sort of an afterthought. And so the Navy SEAL platoon was like, why doesn't your Anglico team come work with us when we go do uh, hydro recons or VBSS or anytime we're out on the boats? Because if we're in the water, who's on the boat to call in the close air support or even man the machine guns? This is back before SWIC, right? So I started doing some, some work with them. And I started going to their operations orders and I started going to their briefs and how they did pre-combat checks. And, and I learned more from that Navy SEAL lieutenant and that Navy SEAL ensign, who, by the way, I'm still really great friends with. And he was one of the major encouraging people to get me going with this podcast. Brilliant guy. I learned more from those two by watching them and their men, who, by the way, ran around calling each other Jim and Andy and Dave and everything else completely outside of our culture. I learned more from those guys watching them do their jobs than I ever learned about giving a mission order at TBS or any time in my artillery community. Yeah. And then so when I hear people say like, oh, those Navy SEALs, I can't say, oh, really? Oh, well, yeah, they're cowboys. Explain that to me because that's a cultural difference. It's all right to call out cultural trends, you know, and every culture has strengths and, and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But the problem I think in the Marine Corps is we tend to be blind to our cultural fallacies, uh, uh, cultural, cultural flaws, and we tend to overemphasize cultural flaws in, in other services and not recognize exactly. their, their strengths. Right. Yeah, the SEAL community can be very good about lower level tactical planning. Sure. I guess what I'm encouraging younger leaders to do is never dismiss an opportunity to get to know somebody else in another branch of the service because I will guarantee you it will broaden your horizon or give you a different perspective on something. And that gets back to Andy, what you were saying about like the creativity and everything else, because when you encourage yourself to think about things differently, you're just fostering creativity, which I think is something that's sorely missing yeah. from our culture. Yeah, a- absolutely. It's, it's missing across the military, but mm-hmm. perhaps more so in the Marine Corps. It is tied also to 
we can talk about, you know, the Marines, are, you know, it's a game of uh, the, the, the warrior's most powerful weapon is his mind and all this other sluganish recruiting shit that we spout. And then you count the number of PhDs in the Marine Corps. And it's like, right. until mm-hmm. recently, until the Commandant's program was started a couple of years ago and the first, you know, uh, the, the first group of guys just graduated a, a year ago. Until that point, you could count the number of Marine PhDs on one hand. Seriously, wow. you know, I, I active duty. I'm not, you know, I mean, okay. and you yeah. can almost name them. You know, I remember when Hamas, you know, everyone's like, Hamas has a PhD and he's an active duty guy. Well, meanwhile, the Air Force and the Army are sending dudes, combat arms guys to Princeton and Yale and Harvard. They're not getting bullshit PhDs in operational studies and, you know, or data analysis. They're getting history PhDs. Right. You mean getting your master's degree out of command and staff? That's college? right, yeah. yeah. And they're coming back and they're teaching at West Point. I mean, Petraeus did it, Chirelli, mm-hmm. and uh, Abizade, you know, and these dudes are, they're, they're in the operational game. And we, we can't do that. You know this, if you're not following the stations of the cross of your particular MOS, you know, in my field, if you're not an operations officer or an XO, you're not going to make battalion command. If you're a fail, say goodbye. Right. So it doesn't matter what we say about, hey, we need guys who understand cultural proclivity and can cross that divide and speak other languages. So why don't you go and do that? Uh, Just know you're going to remain a major the rest of your life. You know, (laughs) but it's like we talk, we say one thing, we do another. And if you want to see what a culture is about, you watch who is getting promoted and who is not getting promoted. doesn't matter what you say about mission command or the importance of languages or you name it. Yeah. The guys I, who, the guys who get ahead are the lockstep guys. They're the guys yeah. in lack of imagination who, oh man, I got to do this because I want to. And I, I was one of those dudes. I'm not, you know, this isn't me just sitting on my high horse saying, yeah, else is fucked up. I was one of them. I've never sat on a promotion board, so I'm, I'm talking out of my ass a little bit, but I've got to imagine a promotion board is doing things like, what's their height, weight? What's their last PFT score? What's their last CFT score? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's just say that some phenomenally brilliant, creative officer who completely, to use the term that you hate, thinks outside the box, uh, applies a level of intellectual curiosity to problem solving, right? All those things, unmeasurable. Can't measure them. Can't measure them. You either have an opinion about that person and they're brilliant or you don't. But boy, the things you can measure, like a PFT score to CFT score, I've got to imagine that those things are so overweighted in a promotion board because they're one of the few things that we can truly measure. But then you look at it and you're like, how important is somebody's CFT score? Oh, one person got promoted because they had a 280 and this person had a 207. Yeah. I mean- You're right. People gravitate to what can be measured. And you do see that on, you see it on command selection boards, for Christ's sake. Yeah. And, and, you know, General Dunford had a very good term for that. And, I, I, um, you know, he said, hey, listen, you know, we all have a fairly high bar as officers. But once you commission, you meet that bar, as long as you, you know, you, we all expect a, a reasonably high PFT score. We all expect, you know, shoot reasonably well. But that's not the hard part of this. Your weapon of choice or your rather the, the weapon of your uh, profession is your uh, mind, is, is leadership. And right. as trite that though that may sound, leadership is a hard skill. By that I mean some people, no matter how much you teach them, will never learn it. 
It's true. You know that because right. you work in the civilian community and you know that. And so well, you, tell can, you, what the you can teach is. anyone to shoot. You can get anyone fitter. You can't necessarily mm-hmm. make someone a better leader if they don't. Or care. a better thinker. Or a better thinker, exactly. So I'll give you first-hand experience of this. So in the civilian world, right, I don't have the luxury of enlistment contracts. I don't have the luxury of the UCMJ. I don't have the luxury of making people listen to me just because I'm a certain rank. Because at the end of the day, my number one most valuable resource, which I would argue is the same resource that the Marine Corps, any branch of service has, is the people. And they leave my work every day at five o'clock and I'm not guaranteed they'll show up again the next day. So if I have to lead my organization with the additional responsibility of ensuring that when they leave at five o'clock, they'll come back at nine o'clock the next day. That's a completely different leadership skill because now I'm forced to create a culture that makes people want to come back to work. The services do not have to worry about that cultural. So I asked the question the other day on an Instagram post where I said, hey, imagine if you're a battalion commander or a company commander, doesn't matter, or a platoon commander, and you walked out in front of your group of of men and women and said, you can leave my command right now with no recourse and go to second platoon or go to alpha company or go to one, three to three, three, whatever it is, no recourse whatsoever. If you would like to leave and, and move to another command, you can leave right now. How many of your men and women would walk out of that formation on the spot? How many? Yeah. 50%. Ask yourself that question. How many people would leave if you gave them the choice to leave? Because in the civilian world, that happens every day at five o'clock. It, it's a great question. It hits to, you know, the really the core objective of leadership is to inspire people, right? Mm-hmm. It is. And by inspiration, it's not empty rah-rah speech. It is the genuine term, which is they, they want to do something, even, even though it might not be rewarding. I mean, might not be enjoyable. They feel, you know, there's a shaded area uh, on the Venn diagram that they recognize as doing something is in their own interest. And that doesn't have to be a selfish interest, but they understand that it's in their own interest and it happens to be in the organization's interest too. And, and that breaks it down into a very prosaic term, but that's really what it's about, right? So that they yeah. will do it even when you're not looking. They will do it even if you're not there and they will choose right. to do it. Even though it might be hard, it might be painful at times, they will, they will choose to do that. And you just use an interesting word. And I want to make sure that I draw a comparison between two words because we talk about motivation all the time. Go out there and motivate your men and women, right? Go like, where's the motivation? The words motivation and inspiration are not even close to being synonymous. Not even close. You can't motivate anybody to do anything they don't want to do. You can only inspire them to do something that you want them to do. And we have this tendency in the military to try to think that we can motivate anybody to do better. And I don't think it works. You can't motivate somebody to not fall out of a run. You can inspire them to catch back up. And we have this thing in the military where we think like yelling at people. I just think we learn in the military when we come in boot camp, officer candidate school, like yelling is just part of it. And then we extrapolate that out into a leadership trait. You're right. There's something indefinitely wrong with, with doing that. It's kind of interesting. It gets to internal motivation, right? Which is really what yeah. it's about in here. Right. And, and uh, it's, it's very, uh, I read an article the other day, 
again, this isn't me being uh, just a eulogizing Brits because uh, I, I was reminded today, I got an email from a friend in the British Army who said, hey, don't go too easy on the Brits. We've got, we, we're fucked up too. <laughs> it's great, you know, uh, and he's right. Of course they're fucked up. You know, I mean, there's a great book I'm reading called Changing of the Guard about how, how messed up the British military is and how they, they dropped the ball again and again in Afghanistan and Iraq because they were just bad, you know, poor leadership, decentralized, I mean, centralized control, all of that. I get it. But one thing they do well is their basic training. You know, there's a great series on Sandhurst that you can look up on YouTube, right? There, and there's a little bit of yelling there, but there isn't a lot. They just, because they understand, and we don't want dudes who need to be yelled at. You don't want to be here? Go. You know, you meet the standard. And the same thing, of course, they have the luxury in the Royal Marines of having a much smaller organization. Same thing. They don't yell at those dudes. They just, hey, you meet the standard. Right. You, you right. got you to meet the standard. If you don't. I would like to know how much yelling goes on at any one of our special operations assessments courses. No one's out there motivating those people to do yeah. anything, I don't think. Yeah. I yeah, mean, it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, of course, there's always a little bit of yelling, but it's nothing like, sure. uh, you know, the boot camp. So I want to touch on a couple of things, Dave, that we talked about. Uh, sure. you know, we talked about imagination, and so this does, and creativity. So it doesn't seem like too esoteric for the audience. So I want to I give a couple of examples, all right? Yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about having a risk-averse culture within the U.S. military. And in the article I just wrote, you know, I, I say that, no, I, it's not that we're risk-averse. It is that we lack again, this intellectual curiosity and we lack creativity. And I'll give you an example. When we give briefs or con up presentations or orders, it all devolves into PowerPoint. And there's a slide called ORM, right? And it's color coded. And whatever level of operation you're doing from the most basic foreign movement up to a major operation, there is that slide, you know, with the color coded slides. And, and there's a way to approach it, you know, hey, this is the risk, this is how we're gonna mitigate it. And the residual risk, oh, look, sir, the res residual risk is now green. And it was like uh, yellow and so, or whatever. And everyone go nod sagely and they move on. The balance between, I tell you, Dave, I've, I've read so many investigations, unfortunately, part of which is because I had, I went through law school. And so every time an investigation came down the pike in my community, whether it was infantry or special operations, I was the dude who got, hand hey, hey, Melbourne went to law school. You know, it didn't matter that I didn't practice for a day. It was like I got the investigation, but it gave me a good perspective. What I started to realize, the most recent one, I didn't do the investigation on this, but, the, you know, it comes to mind is the investigation into the death of four U.S. soldiers in Niger in 2017. But time and time again, especially in combat, what goes wrong is a misunderstanding between mission and risk. And I've never seen a decent conversation occur until one day, and this wasn't even a conversation, it kind of really triggered it to me. I'm briefing, happened to be SEALs, right? When I had the siege of Sotov, I'm briefing the uh, Sotov commander and his operations officer is on an upcoming mission. And his operations officer said, uh, said hey, sir, is this a no, no fail mission? I thought that's an extraordinary term. I've never heard that before. What do you mean no fail? I mean, I'd rather you didn't fail. You know, on balance, if you get a choice between succeeding and failing, choose to succeed. Right. You know, I'm like, but then I thought about it and I thought what he really meant was, so what's the balance here between mission and risk? How much risk in order to accomplish this mission, how much risk are you, are you prepared to take? That is, and it's a great question. And that is the conversation we should be having. And when things go south, it's because people misunderstand that balance 
that expectation between mission and risk. They either think, hey, I've got to get this done no matter what, and they minimize risk, or they exaggerate risk in their minds, or they don't understand that sometimes you have to incur short-term risk in order to mitigate longer-term risk with the mission. Can I give you a quick example on this? Yeah, please. In my book and the beginning of this article I wrote the other day about culture, why U.S. military culture leads to defeat, I give a little vignette, true vignette, right? And it's, it's a conversation between me and a one star in Iraq when I had the siege of Sodif, okay? And it's, you know, I don't really give context, so just give the dialogue. And, uh, the, and, and it's the one star, he's got, he has a title, he's conventional army one star, he has a title called Theater Engagement Authority, right? Or Target Engagement, no, Theater Engagement Authority. And so here's the dude that we all have to go through in order to engage the enemy, even though the Islamic State is a declared hostile force. Now, there was policy involved in this, but he could widen or, or close that aperture as much as he thought his judgment allowed. In other words, he could delegate that authority to me or he could retain it to himself. And this conversation is, you know, real case. I'm watching uh, the Peshmerga launch an attack and we're supporting them by calling in, you know, airstrikes on, on the Islamic State positions. We're in a position, this isn't, you know, we're not looking at it through drones or any uh, FMV. We are physically in a position where we can oversee the whole panoramic attack. And the Peshmerga get bogged down. They, they conduct a breach on the berm, which is the, you know, the, basically the line between us and the Islamic State. They get caught in the berm and the Islamic State starts shwacking them with mortars. It's an ugly scene. I'm there with a Marsoc team and I've got Swedes and Italians and OPs and they're all calling in, hey, sir, these guys are getting carved up. Can we open fire? And I'm like, yeah, of course you can. Collective self-defense, fucking go to it. You know, so everyone opens fire, heavy machine guns, mortars, snipers, because you can see the Islamic State dudes pretty clearly. I get a call in the net and it's a TA and he said, hey, are you guys engaging with direct fire? And I went, yeah, we are and mortars. <laughs> We're everything we've got. <laughs> right, like, yeah. I couldn't lie to him because it's all going on in the background. He's going, hey, you didn't get my permission. I'm like, hey, sir, the Peshmerga getting whacked in the breach. And he said, have you taken our American forces under direct fire? I went, no. He said, under effective fire. I went, no, sir, but... We're 400 meters away. That's a single, you know, this is an artillery guy. That's a single correction, you know. Yeah, we're, right. We'll be, we're next. I mean, you, this is justifiable. And, it, and he's like, you're not, you don't have the authority to make that call, Colonel. Cease fire now. All right. So I, anyway, that's, that's the vignette at the beginning. I won't tell you what happened. You have to read the book. But yeah, um, I know his, what happened. Yeah, yeah. His, no, here's my point on this. All right. I get it. I get why he was saying that. The reason why he was saying that is that we're in a sovereign country. But the other thing, he understood that there was tremendous political pressure not to get U.S. casualties, right? He felt that, you know, so therefore he was there in a position to decide whether we could open fire or not. Because if we open fire, you make yourself, yes, you might preempt being hit, but also arguably you make yourself more vulnerable, right? Because now you've pinpointed your positions. I get all of that. Where we went south was he didn't understand that I got that. We never had that conversation because I would have said to him, hey, sir, I understand the overall mission, which is degrade, defeat, dismantle ISIS, very alliterative. In order to do that, our center of gravity, which, you, which is said in the CJTF order, bear with me, is our relationship with our partner nation forces. If you are telling me not to open fire on collective self-defense to support them, 
uh, when they're getting hit and they can see us just sitting there. What do you think that does to that center of gravity, that relationship? All right. So yes, we might incur short-term risk on a small scale, a handful of dudes, but by not doing that, we incur much greater strategic risk. He did not understand that. All right. And I didn't have the opportunity to say it to him because all we did was exchange fucking PowerPoint slides and con ops and, and orders. There is an example of what I mean. All right. Number one. Number two, when I talk about creative thinking, same campaign. You know, we go through the, you know, the joint planning process. We're waiting to go out there. We go down to Joint Special Operations University where I, you know, I teach now. It's a great organization. They are, uh, they're awesome. They, you know, the, we go through the planning course. Bear in mind, we, we have a hodgepodge of dudes from all over. I mean, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, and my staff, very junior guys. And first time they've gone through the planning process. So we, you know, we learn about what a center of gravity is, critical vulnerability, all this bullshit. It's not bullshit. And we come up with a plan and we think it's an awesome plan. We decide, hey, the enemy center of gravity are his troops. He's got the caliphate, I mean, the, uh, the army, the, you know, 20,000 fighters, 20, 30,000 fighters. That is what he can use to hurt us. We get out there, though, and we realize, you know, and then we get told again, hey, your job here is to support the Iraqi security forces in their fight up the Euphrates Valley. Well, Mosul's several hundred kilometers away, and it's going to be a long, hard slog. But we figure we can do what we need to do. It's just kill a ton of ISIS dudes and just keep killing them. So we start. And then it's really important always to examine your assumptions and look at yourself hard and say, I get it that I'm doing things right, but am I doing the right things? And we had, a, you know, this isn't my leadership. It's just I had a group of really bright guys. I had Brits, Australians, Europeans, Italians, and we used to talk about this every evening. You know, one of the conversations early on was, hey, sir, it doesn't matter how many of these fuckers we kill. They're streaming in across the border from Syria and they're coming in through Turkey. And for every one we kill, there's another two coming in to take their place. This is going to last forever. And by the way, the Euphrates Valley, at the rate we're going um, and the Iraqi army's going, it's going to take three years to reach Mosul. And they were right. I said, so what's the answer? You know, we've got 500 dudes. What's the answer? Well, so we got to go after Mosul. That's, the, that's his heart. That's his moral center. That's his strategic center of gravity. Fuck, you know, never mind his tactical, you know, his tactical vulnerability. We got to go after his strategic center of gravity. All right, dudes, how do we do that? Well, we've got to, we've got to attack him mentally. We've got, to, we've got to threaten it. So collectively, they came up with this plan to work with the resistance, to raise a resistance within Mosul using the internet. FaceTime, Skype, WhatsApp, right? Never meeting the guys that we're persuading put their lives on the line. Only kids who've grown up with the internet can do that, right? But these guys uh, weren't cyber geeks. They were special operators, but they understood human nature and they understood how to work with people. And the other part of the thing was, the other thing, sir, is the population of Mosul are shit scared of being liberated by a Shia army. They're Sunnis. They, that's not getting liberated. That's returning into the fucking fire. We need to have Sunnis start attacking into Mosul. You know, okay, okay, smart guy, where do we find Sunnis? Well, sir, I had this thought. You know, there are a bunch of Sunnis being displaced. So it starts, these conversations over the period of days start to evolve. Well, let's go up there, man. Let's contact the Peshmerga and start finding Sunnis that we can form into fighters and get their Peshmerga, you know, uh, permission. And we had to make a pact with the devil. We had to work with the Turks. 
we had to work with a group called the Nachobandi, who some of you, you know, we fought against in, in the first go-round in Iraq. I mean, the Nachobandi were our enemy. And uh, here we are working with a bunch of these guys now against ISIS. And so you see what I'm saying, though? Mm-hmm. And, and so what this, this operation started to gain traction so much that the 101st Airborne Division started putting it on their slides, and that's how we knew it was gaining traction. We called it Emerald Bounty because... Mosul was the Emerald City, right? It's this is very tenuous. Mosul was the Emerald City, and then you know the, a play on the words mutiny on the bounty, right? You know because uh, mm-hmm. we we're yeah. creating a mutiny within. So so it was, and it had an outside in component, which was the fighters raiding into the outskirts of Mosul, and inside out, which was the resistance group. We were working with former enemies. We we're working with the Turks, who we were told we could not help. You know, we weren't even allowed to talk to them. I had to get special permission to talk, go through the Turks because the Turks were training these former Nacho. You know, it just, well, the complexities keep piling up. You know, we were undoubtedly working with dudes who had American blood on their hands in the past. And, and we could have tripped up on our sensibilities. Oh, I'm not doing that, but these fuckers are. And we would have failed. And, and one other part of this was, you know, as we're planning these raids and I'm briefing them to 101st Airborne Commander and time and again, he go, Andy, you better succeed because if you fuck up, you're gone. He was very straight about it. You're all gone. I can't afford to have a bunch of dead Sunnis on my hands. Do you understand that? And I can't afford to it getting out that you're working with former fucking Al-Qaeda dudes. And I'm like, sure, they're not former Al-Qaeda. They're not Shabandi. And they're uh, 20, the, you know, the 20th of March Martyr Brigade or whatever. And he's like, what the fuck, man? The goddamn fucking Hajis, shut up. You know, I mean, he was, he was a conventional dude. But anyway, so, you know, when I was briefing him on raids, He's like, why, why the fuck are you doing raids? If you were seizing outskirts of Mosul, stay put, man. We'll send in reinforcements. I'm like, sir, no, because you know what? There's a reaction time. And, and we start, I mean, you watch the movie Bridge Too Far. We're not hanging dudes out on the, the tenuous expectation they're going to get reinforced and give uh, Islamic State time to carve them up. Well, what's the point in, good question. You know, his question was good. What's the point in taking ground to give it up? Sir, it's all a mental game. We take ground. It's their ground. They're going to respond. They're going to, they've got a counterattack because everyone knows we've got Sunni dudes in there taking, you know, Bashika Ridge or whatever it is, these outskirts of Mosul. They, they've got to attack. And daylight, they're going to come out in the open. We can, we can schwack them with airstrikes and get on the internet and let everyone know what the hell's happening in Mosul. And it, and it just keeps building, building on itself. So, you know, again, um, He's like, all right, you know, but if you fuck up, you're done. <laughs> you know, he's always, yeah. he's always well, that, very encouraging in this way. Yeah, but that leads me to a question, though, because you're talking about risk aversion and you're talking about creativity. And I want to come back to the creativity after I ask this next question, because I, I think they're one of the most overlooked opportunities for actual creativity in the military right now is our complete lack of understanding of information operations and using social media to drive information operations. Uh, I'm not an expert at information operations, but I know a lot about social media. So I'm, I'm connecting those two things, knowing something about one thing, not knowing something about the other thing, but applying some common sense. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I don't want to gloss over this risk aversion thing because you just said it, which was, you know, I can't afford to have you you will be fucking gone if you do this, right? How much of that risk aversion is really adding to this problem of leadership and culture across the branches where we have instilled such an environment of 
not being able to take risks yeah. and learn something from mistakes because your career is just over based on the smallest little thing, unless you've achieved a rank where it doesn't matter anymore. I, you know, I want to weigh in here and say, you know, I'd love to say that it's career related. I, I want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt and say that it's not necessarily career related. It is the feeling that they alone understand political risk. So I want to pretend this guy who subsequently went on to his uh, two-star man, he went on to get his third star. So his career was doing very well. I want to give him the benefit down and say that, you know, from his point of view, having Sunnis killed working for the U.S. would have been politically disastrous. You know, strategically, it was strategically a bad move. You see what I'm saying? But what he didn't understand, this is what I would argue, gets back to, he didn't understand the balance between mission and risk. That the mission, you see what I'm saying? The mission was to yeah. go after the enemy's strategic center of gravity. You don't do that without incurring strategic risk. You, you see, he, he missed that balance. And, and yeah. so I, I would say, again, it, it's not necessarily careerism. It's lack of intellect. It's, it's lack of understanding. And it's lack of the... Of, of just a willingness to have this open conversation with subordinates. Yeah. And confining everything into PowerPoint fucking packages that go across 20 staff officers' desks, all of whom look for something to say about it, instead of getting the guys who, who need to talk about it in the same room to fucking talk about it. First of all, when you and I came in, there was no such thing as an ORM slide. That, yeah. that, never, that never existed when you and I came in. And then I remember the first time I saw it as an army school, I'm like, wow, I'm really glad the Marine Corps doesn't do this because it's just a complete waste of time. Because you say like, oh, the risk is somebody dying from a heat stroke, red. How do you mitigate that risk? Oh, you make everybody drink a whole bunch of water. Great. Risk is eliminated. Is the risk of a heat stroke really eliminated? I mean, that's a very basic example. But I just looked at it. I was like, yeah. you can pencil whip any solution to any risk, and you're not really changing the risk. We made the same mistake when it comes to assessment, right? We reduced assessment to, I mean, this is all, these are all- You're talking about assessment into the special forces or like- uh, No, across, no, no, no. I meant or, assessment of how we're doing in an operation. Okay. Okay. So think about this. You remember the meth- like meth level bubs or division level bubs in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're all focused on the last 24 hours. And, but there's not a lot of intelligent conversation going on there. It's brief after mindless fucking brief. And then one thing that one of my least favorite slides was always the assessment slides, which were, you know, PowerPoint color codes, again, obligatory. Here's how many wells we dug or whatever, you name it. You know, it was all absolute measures of performance rather than effectiveness. We don't understand how to conduct an assessment. What my guys were doing, no thanks to me, but what my guys were doing in these honest conversations in the evening, that's assessment. You see what I'm saying? It was, hey boss, I don't, I, I can't see us getting that from here, man. Imagine if that conversation had taken place at four-star level in Afghanistan. Yeah. Hey boss, we, I get it, we're fighting to get the politicians a breathing space here. But what are they doing with that breathing space? Who's making them breathe in that fucking breathing space? And the fumes in that breathing space are pretty damn noxious. I don't know if you noticed. You know, these sort of conversations instead of slides, one-way discussions. You know, I'm not simplifying the problem. I'm just saying that these are all absolutely important. We've lost the ability to have right. intellectual discussions about important things. So transitioning the topic to a topic real quick about social media, which, which I brought up a little bit before, I'm interested to get your opinion on how leaders can 
maybe embrace social media as a warfighting tool that senior leaders, I just don't think, are, are embracing right now. And it's probably just generational in the fact that they didn't grow up on it and younger leaders have. And, and that is this. And I'll use an example that's that's very fresh in everybody's mind, which was all of the disinformation campaign that was going on as it related to the evacuation from Kabul. I was glued to social media during that because I wanted the most up-to-date understanding of what was going on. It became so clear to me. And if this didn't become clear to our senior leaders in the military, they really got to open their eyes. The disinformation that was going on, and and I am convinced that it was nefarious characters from our, you know, our, our enemies out there on social media, just inundating people with information that I don't think was accurate in an effort to whip up resentment and contempt for our general officers and the decision-making process that they were going through. And I'm not saying that their decision-making process was right. I'm just saying the efforts to undermine them as leaders on social media. And my first thought is like, where's the counter battery on this? Where is the strategic communication efforts at the DOD level to thwart this sort of disinformation campaign going on. And and most people listening to this, if they're at all on social media, will know exactly what I'm talking about. There was this rumor going around that the task force commander and the sergeant major were directing Marines on the ground to police call the trash in the airport. And you couldn't get anybody on social media to believe anything other than that was the truth. I was seeing things like, I have it on good authority. I saw text messages. I've seen DMs. I'm like, where do you think those things originated from? Right? Like, are you so blind as to think like they can't create some sort of text message string that all of a sudden everybody thinks is this authority on what's going on? Next thing you know, you've got an entire population of veterans undermining, you know, general officer efforts to actually, you know, pull off a military operation. And you would think if I was that task force commander, I'd be like, hey, listen. Call somebody up at the Pentagon, get something out on our mill.net, whatever Instagram page we have, and tell them it's not true. Nothing. Yeah, we, we are, for a nation that spawned Madison Avenue, we are dreadful about, and it's a good term, counter-battery fire or preemptive fires yeah. when it comes to the information environment. And so there's two parts to this, right? And first of all, I, I want to give a plug for, I'm a podcast host too, not not near, nearly as debonair or intellectually astute or even interesting as you, Dave. Oh, God. But it's for the Modern War Institute, which is a joint venture between Princeton and West Point. One of the themes, I, I encourage everyone to look it up. It's called the Irregular Warfare Podcast. And there's, one of the themes is, is that exactly that influence, operations in the information environment. And the other part about this, in my other touch point is that I now work with the Marine Corps on the MAGTAF warfighting exercises out in 29 Palms, where again, information operations, you know, I hate that term because you tend to think of leaflet drops and all that archaic bullshit we dealt with in Somalia. And of course, it should have moved exponentially beyond that. But that is a key part of, of warfighting now. And we we collectively, both internally and by internally, I mean, focus on the American public, getting the truth out early and preemptively, and then also to a foreign audience, are always, always, always slow. You know, when you use that OODA loop analogy, our enemies are always ahead of us. And sometimes we don't even need the enemy. We're our worst enemies, such as when something goes wrong, you know, the drone strike, we allow everyone else to to get the information before the Pentagon lets it out. 
Again, I, I don't mean to ascribe everything to the same thing, but what I see, because I've looked at this harder, we've interviewed people on the podcast and talked and talked about it. I see, again, just a lack of imagination, yeah. creativity. You know, I mean, you think about the world you come from, or no, you think about the advertising world, you th think about the incredibly inventive, imaginative things that occur in that world. Americans doing this. So why don't we get the same intellect and creativity in the Pentagon working on, you know, and, and I get it. No one's arguing that we should put out lies no, or deception, mm -hmm. but we are not good at not just counter battery fires, but getting things out preemptively and quickly. And our press conferences, just on a very prosaic level, Pentagon press conferences um, have started to look like, you know, they, they, do you remember the discussions? I don't know if you read books like Michael Hare's Dispatches, and mm -hmm. they used to call sure. the press conferences the five o'clock follies. Because they all knew it was just, you know, the, the military MACV in Vietnam was way, was way behind on the information flow than reporters who were flying places on helicopters and seeing stuff for their right. own, with their own eyes. Right. We've well, got to be more flexible, responsive, agile, and we are not. Yeah, it's not just creativity, Andy. I mean, and I'm going to implore every single leader at any level that hears this that this attitude about social media, I hear people saying all the time, like, oh, that face page thing, I'm not, that's for teenage girls. Yeah. Hey, I'm, yeah. I'm telling you something right now, okay? It is one of the most effective information Huge tools thing. that are being used by our enemy, and we're not doing anything back. It's too bad. And, and if we lack the creativity and we lack, okay, first of all, we need to gain some acceptance. Once we gain some acceptance, if we still lack the credibility inside of the Pentagon, outsource it to some civilian company on a yeah. defense contract. We do with recruiting and we right. do it very well. Great point, great know? point. Because we're, we're losing this information war. Because but when it comes to substantive stuff, we, yeah, I, I think you're right on target there. Mm -hmm. Hey, one other thing I wanted to say about social media, Dave, it's kind of a, and this has evolved over the last few years when I was a siege assertive commander, you know, one of my assertive commanders who was a SEAL came to me and said, hey, sir, why don't we have a social exploitation, social media exploitation cell? Well, bear in mind, this was um, six, seven years ago. No, five years ago, sorry. So at the time, you know, now, of course, everyone has one. But back then, that was new, I thought. So I started to learn about it, talk to the dudes who had set it up, mostly Intel guys. We set it up, and then we started putting non-Intel guys in there, and we put coalition guys, and we got Iraqis in there. And so it wasn't just collecting and monitoring what was going on. We also had a messaging piece that we could not use do ourselves because we're very tightly circumscribed. Another problem with our system, we're very tightly circumscribed. It is easier to drop a bomb on someone than it is to send them a message or send them a tweet. Right. That's been said before. It is absolutely true. I can tell you because I've dealt with trying to get authorities' permissions to do that. But, yeah. but if you're using a partner nation force like the Iraqis in their own sovereign country and you're working with them collaboratively, there's no limit to what you can do. No limit at all. It's also the response to that bomb, right? So let me play that out for a second. You use a bomb for something tactically. And let's just say, you know, it's, it's a good strike, okay? The enemy rapidly, within 10 minutes, starts blasting out on social media that that bomb just killed 18 children. Yeah. You have just lost the information war on the spot. And you may have gained some sort of tactical advantage with that bomb, but you have lost it on the information side because now they have been first out on social media, pictures, whether they're fabricated, you know, like you can, they can fabricate all of this stuff, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the next bomb has to get dropped. Well, now you end yeah. up with some tactical engagement authority and- you know, because we can't have another 18 kids killed, even though they weren't killed. And 
you know, so this thing can spiral out of control so fast because and, you don't and if own they were space. We should be the first to get that word out. That's right. Right. You know, so why didn't we have think of all the dudes we have in DOD. Think of all the intelligence guys. Why couldn't we get with the New York Times reporters and say, show us what you got, guys. Let's sit down and look at what you got. Why couldn't we do that? We couldn't fucking do that. Well, we're going to um, conduct an independent investigation. And these guys were running loops around us and pulling the truth out. That's what I'm talking about, the truth. We right. can't even set ourselves free. You know, we are high bound, 100%. Very, very frustrating. You've, you've ended this on a bad note for me, Dave. No, I'll, I'll, I'm going to end it on normally, a Normally, I, we're pretty happy by this time in the evening when I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I now mean, I'm sad and angry. Yeah, Andy, I've, I've got to have you. I've got to have you back on again because I promise. So I much more to talk about, man. There, there is, and I mean, there. Look. This is a non-traditional podcast for me because I end up like asking questions, talk about leadership. You and I just went on and on for two hours, like the blink of an eye. I feel like it's you know like the thirty years that had gone by since since you and I had seen each other was a blink of an eye. But I've got to have you back on because there are so many other lessons in leadership that you have to share with younger people. You've got fantastic stories. I know they're all in the book. I'm going to encourage everybody to go pick the book up and check out your podcast at the Irregular Warfare Podcast. I listen to it in the car. I don't listen to it at night because I can't risk falling asleep, but I listen to it during the day. Uh, <laughs> what are you saying, man? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many lessons in that book. I am going to encourage any leader at any level to grab your book. And you know what, Andy, this isn't, this isn't a slight. This is a compliment. You could sit down and thumb to any page in that book and just start reading. And it's just chock full. You don't, the context of what happened before is irrelevant. There's just so many leadership lessons in that book based on your experience. I want to have you back on because I want to talk about some things that you experienced. I think there's some fantastic opportunities for you to talk to some leader, to junior leaders about things about how can they prepare for the inevitable when they're scared out yeah. of their mind or oh, how, to think, yeah. Yeah, how to think through wow. decision-making before it even presents itself yeah. to you. And um, leadership as an act, right? You know, mm -hmm. we, we, were, we were taught at TBS, just be yourself. And then we learn that's kind of bullshit because yeah. you have, because we all have different personalities and sometimes you have to step into the void in your own personality when you need to, you have to pretend to be angry when you're not, you have to pretend to be not angry when you are, you have to be tend not to be shit scared when, you know, you, your pants are filling up. And the other thing I think we should talk about, Dave, is um, resilience, nurturing mental resilience, emotional resilience. That's something I've, I've struggled with and, and it's taken me a long, long time. And I don't think that I did a good job of it when I was in active duty. Well, I think a lot of people struggle with that. I think your comment about mental and emotional resilience is as important as your physical endurance. And we don't train to that. We don't talk about it. This is exactly why I started this podcast, because I want to create a medium for people to learn from the experience of others in a way that's digestible and consumable quickly and gets the word out there. Not enough people are writing books. You've done a fantastic job. But every time somebody with 30 years of experience leaves the military, all of their lessons in leadership are gone along with them. And I just think we need to stop and fix that because this is such an opportunity for people to share their leadership experiences for others to, to become better leaders than we were, which is pretty easy from you know, yeah, me, but it, not you. It is. So. You know... <laughs> And, and not to like overshare towards the end of this part, you know, you know, some things that 
are in that book. Um, but for you know benefit of the listeners, I um I lost my daughter in a, a car accident. I mean, she's biking is she's hit by a car, a truck, just right before I deployed. Actually, it was in late 2015. But my point here is that that obviously was the most difficult thing I went through, and I didn't deal with it. I don't think particularly well or, uh, you know, in, in a healthy way and um, learned a lot as a result. I think ultimately I'm a better person. And so any lessons I pass on from that isn't about just simply sharing my angst, but, you know, hopefully, you know, I talked about it before and I was very reluctant to do so and I'm not going to do so at depth here. But one thing that really made me kind of almost, almost gave meaning to that horrible, horrible incident was the all the people who contacted me saying, hey, listen, I've been through a similar thing and it really helped hearing you talk about it, you know, whether it was combat tragedy or personal tragedy. And then uh, you may not know this, Dave, but, you know, kind of the the thing that really got me thinking about this whole topic and, and, and was kind of another horrible milestone to get through was I lost my sister to suicide a year ago. Those of you who've dealt with suicide uh, know other loved one know what a, what a dreadful wake it leaves. You know, I mean, death, premature death is always a, a tragedy, but suicide particularly so because everyone, of course, you ask yourself every day, you know, what if, what if? And so, you know, that that sent me kind of on a path of just trying to examine my what led my sister to do that. And you can never, you know, a chaplain once described it to me as being a heart attack of the soul. And, and he said, you know, this is before I lost my sister, I was dealing with a marine suicide. And he said, you know, you can never get inside their minds at that point, at that, the point that it happened. You just have to understand that it was a cataclysmic breakdown. And that's what he called it, a heart attack of the soul, which I thought was not a bad expression. But it did make me think, you know, about resilience and how important it is, not just suicide prevention, but just enabling us to get through the turpitudes, of, you know, of just just existence, all the shit that happens. You have yeah. to be in combat to understand that. A lot of guests on the podcast talk about when I, I ask them, you know, what leadership trait do you think is the most important? And it's amazing to me how many people have been coming back and saying empathy, empathy, empathy. Oh, empathy. Absolutely. Empathy pays, yeah. plays so much into resilience. Yeah, very, very much so. And I'm, I'm sorry to, to learn about your sister. I didn't know that. And I only imagine that it was very, very difficult. I think the takeaway for everybody listening on that is I don't know a single person that wouldn't take a call from somebody else who just needed to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. And we, as a, all branches of the service, we as the military organization, we have to do a better job of having some empathy for people, identifying things early, and being available and just reaching out and talking and being available to listen to other people who are in pain about something and, and trying to help each other out. I think we have to rely on ourselves to fix this problem of military suicides and suicides in general. Nothing has seemed to work. Nobody seems to have any answers. So all we can do is try to have some empathy for everybody and be there when they need to talk and just be there for each other. 100% Dave. Yeah. Gosh, I could have ended it on a funnier story. I guess I could, we'll have to pick up next time, Andy. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on this. I know you travel a lot and for the life of me, I can't understand why you've been back to Somalia three times since you've uh, retired, but uh, we'll have to save that for another, another podcast. But I just know it's that there's so life. much that people can learn from you and I'd like to have you back on and talk about it more. Dave, it's been, it's been an enormous pleasure. And, uh, you know, I know I shouldn't 
I'm not glamorizing alcohol, but this is actually the the longest conversation we've had without the benefit of alcohol. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot from you. Not that I normally don't, but I'm probably less receptive, you know. And after a, a few dirty martinis, well, it's, we yeah, we we always uh, next we always time, have a good time. Ne- next time we'll, we will repeat that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Colonel Andy Milburn, author of When the Tempest Gathers, go give it a five star review and then buy it. And uh, and well, just uh, the five star review, right? Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and, and right. And be sure to check out some of his uh, his other articles that he's written. Specifically, the ones I found really valuable for the in the context of this conversation was when not to obey orders. That was back in July of 2019. And breaking ranks, descent in the military profession. Andy, I know you probably have some other favorites in there too. If you want to mention them real quick. You know, I can't think offhand, but uh, certainly, yeah, if you, I know this sounds like really narcissistic, but yeah, if you like Google my name and what's that? It's called Muckrack, right? Muckrack is, it's kind of a compilation. You can Google your name with Muckrack and it, and it it's lists like an all aggregator, the articles right? you've written. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably the, you know, because there's something, I, I hope there's something there for pretty much everyone. I hope that the things that I have been interested in writing about across a pretty wide spectrum of topics. Yeah, well, keep writing. I know a lot of people read your stuff and you are not lacking for creativity and thought. Great, thanks, Dave. Thanks again for being on. Yeah, you too.